Thank you, Laura. I hope we are captivated with the Lord Jesus this morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 24. told a few of you this morning, but I just wanted you to know that if you really desired this rain that we've had, that you have me to thank for it. I'd like to tell you that's because I was so spiritual and I prayed it into existence. Well, that's not the case. The case is that I believed the weathermen yesterday, and so I started re-roofing one of our storage sheds yesterday, and they had part of the roof off. So at 2 o'clock this morning, I was in the pouring rain putting a tarp over the storage shed, so you're welcome. Matthew chapter 13, <clears throat> every preacher and probably most Christians have at some point been faced with the question, why is there evil in the world? Skeptics uh, frequently challenge Christians with the problem of a good God allowing suffering. Usually their argument goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, he could prevent or eliminate suffering. If God is all-good, he would not want his creation to suffer. And since you say God is both, suffering should not exist. In fact, however, we see suffering all around us, and we experience it ourselves. The skeptic says, therefore, God does not exist or he's not all-powerful, or he's not all-good. Philosophers down through the ages have attempted to explain the presence of evil in the world. You can go to any of the public libraries around the world and you'll find their books on those shelves. Volumes have been written on the subject. There is even a special discipline in theology with its own name, that focuses on answers to the presence of evil. It's called theodicy. The story that we're going to examine today introduces us to that very problem. This story deals with one of man's oldest and deepest mysteries concerning the universe, and that is the origin of evil and its continuation today. The fact that our world is a mingling of good and evil is all too apparent to everyone. Now we noted in the last message that Matthew begins chapter 13 to record seven classic parables about the kingdom of heaven. These parables then are called the parables of the kingdom because they use the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So what do we mean when we speak of the kingdom of heaven? When the Lord speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he's not referring to heaven itself, to the place. He has a much broader application in mind. He's describing what God the Father is accomplishing in the world through his Son. The kingdom age started when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth and it will carry out throughout the course of history until he returns and he sets up his millennial kingdom. We are right now in 
We'll be all through our lives in the kingdom age. Last time in chapter 13, in the first 23 verses, we studied the parable of the, po- the sower or the parable of the soils. One important difference with the previous parable is in the parable of the sower, the seed was the word of God. The seeds were the same, but the soils were different. In this particular parable, the soil is the same, but the seeds are different. In this parable, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And another came and sowed a different kind of seed. And it grew up together, and the servants came and asked the man what to do. The whole story is a picture of God's work and God's program in our world. Let's look again at that parable beginning in verse number 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. When Jesus completed this parable, he told two more small parables, the mustard seed and the leaven. Then when Jesus and his disciples were alone, they asked him, for an explanation of the parable of the tares, and he goes on to explain it to him. Of the four parables that Jesus tells, the disciples come to him and ask for an explanation of only one of them. They didn't ask about the sowers, they didn't ask about the soils, they didn't ask about the mustard seed or the leaven. When they asked Jesus to explain the parable, they ask him, to explain the one that is the focus of our attention this morning, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, why did they choose this one over all the others? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but I'm going to venture a guess. My guess is that this parable contained some element or other that troubled these 12 men. And I have to be honest, if we examine it very closely, I think that some of these elements will bother us as well. By way of introduction, let me examine this parable using Christ's own explanation. And notice some reasons why this parable, of all that he told that day, caught the attention of the disciples. Beginning in verse 36, Jesus gives us the explanation. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. 
but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sold them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. In explaining this parable, Jesus told his disciples and us the identities of those who are involved in this parable. He told them that the field is the world, and he is the good farmer. The good seed is the gospel, and the wheat is that those who have heard the gospel and responded are saved. The enemy is Satan, and the bad seeds produce tares. These are the unsaved who have the appearance of being saved. The harvest at which the tares and the wheat are separated is the judgment at the end of the world. Now this story holds at least four general principles that I want us to notice this morning. And first of all, there is much beyond our control. Everybody here will admit that with me this morning. There is much in life that is beyond our control. Like the farmer in the story, we all work hard to be successful. The farmer understands to be successful, he has to do his very best. He uses the best seeds, the best land, and he worked very, very diligently. He leaves nothing to chance because in farming there is no room for error. But in life, things frequently, usually, eventually, almost always do not go as we plan. It is then that we ask ourselves, why did these things happen to me? I did everything right. Those dreams that we worked so hard to achieve, this business into which we've invested so much of ourselves and our money, this family, this relationship, this marriage, this partnership, this friendship, and then something happens, and it turns sour, stale, flat. Sorrowful. What happens? Well, a lot of things can be fixed, and we ought to try. But some things can't, and you just have to accept it. When you've done all that you can, that's all you can do, and that's all that you're expected to do, because there are things that are beyond our control. The second thing that I want you to note is that we have an enemy who hates us. Where does evil come from? Well, Jesus said an enemy has done this. And the word that Jesus uses to describe the enemy is actually diabolos, the liar, the one who is against all that is good and holy. And since we have an enemy who is fiercely opposed to the extension of God's work and his rule in this earth, we should not be surprised at what he's willing to do. The devil, or Satan, is like the enemy of a certain farmer who sows weeds in God's field. He scatters his unbelievers among God's children. Out of sheer malice and hatred, he sows a crop of his own. In a general way, this means that the devil's children and God's children live side by side in this world. But even more pointedly, I think, Jesus says that these seeds will be sown among the wheat, according to verse 25. And that is in the church. The devil's going to bring forth people 
who are so much like real Christians that even the servants of God cannot tell them apart. Because this is true, we shouldn't be surprised if the devil's people show up in strange places and eventually show their colors by abandoning the church altogether. In 2 Corinthians, Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 11 and verses 14 and 15, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. We have an enemy who hates us. And third, the weeds and the wheat grow together because God is not finished yet. The problem with the tares is threefold. First, in the beginning, the tares and the wheat look too much alike to be distinguishable. The tares, translated weed in the Revised Standard Version, is literally zazania. It's commonly called the darnel, the darnel. And it's indistinguishable from wheat when it first emerges. The Jews called it degenerate wheat or bastard wheat because it looked like what was real, but it was not. God is producing authentic believers and Satan is planting his counterfeits. I found it interesting that Billy Graham wrote that his greatest mission field was among the roles of America's churches. During his crusades, 70% of the people who were saved were members of churches. Most of these were probably good people who thought they were already saved. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Secondly, when it can be distinguished from the wheat, it's too late. It's too late because the roots of the darnel have become intertwined with the roots of the wheat so that you can't pull out one without pulling out the other. It's comforting to know, at least to me, that we as believers are not given the responsibility of determining who's saved and who's not. It's not my job to determine who's saved and who's not. I will not be the determiner where either man or any woman goes to heaven, and neither will you. Third, only at the harvest can the two be separated. This is going to lead us to the final principle, which is found in Jesus' explanation to his disciples. And the fourth and final principle is, there is a future separation of good and evil. Verse 40 begins, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. 
and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's coming a time at which there will be no further deception. At the time of the harvest of the tares and the wheat, they will be harvested and separated without difficulty. The course of human history is set toward judgment. Jesus said that this judgment would be at the end of the age. This ingathering will occur when the Lord returns in the air to gather out his wheat from the fields of this world. But what a different fate awaits the wheat and the tares. The wheat, without exception, will be taken into the barn. The tares, without exception, will be destroyed by burning. The tares will be gathered and cast into a furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. These terms, of course, are used to describe the horrors of hell, which is the final abode of all those who have rejected God and his plan and his son. The wheat will be gathered in the Father's barn. Not one saved will be among the unsaved, and not one unsaved will be among the saved. The saved, we are told, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And the unsaved will know unending torment and anguish. At the final harvest, we may be surprised by some of the people who really are God's children. I think that's going to be one of the funny things about heaven. We get there and we find out there are some people there that we didn't think were going to make it. And there are going to be some people absent that we thought would have made it. The point being that only God knows the heart. God alone is the final judge. And he will make no mistakes. There will be no idle arguments about the hypocrisies of others. Those who say, well, I would have been saved if so-and-so hadn't been such a hypocrite. The Apostle Paul tells us that there are time coming when every mouth shall be stopped. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? Pretty graphic. There will be no more excuses or blaming others. Paul later says in Romans, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. But the word of God says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In his love, God still offers forgiveness and salvation. So here's the good news and the bad news. The good news. We still live in an age of grace in which a tear can, come, can become wheat. Sinners can become saints. Children of the devil can still become children of the king. Counterfeit members in the church can be changed into genuine and profitable members. The bad news. Evil still exists. Bad things still happen even to good people. We begin by noting that skeptics say that because suffering and evil exist in the world, then God doesn't exist or he's not all-powerful or is not all good. But I want you to consider the consequence of, of accepting
accepting the skeptic's premise that suffering proves that God does not exist or that he's not all-powerful or all-good. If God does not exist, then all of existence, including our suffering, has no lasting value, no purpose, no goal. If God is not all-powerful, then we have no hope that suffering will ever be eliminated. The skeptic has it partially right. Suffering should offend our sense of goodness and fairness and justice. But sadly, the skeptic misses the real argument. Because suffering violates goodness and justice, there must be an all-good and all-powerful God whose remedy restores the perfection that he originally created. This is the hope the Christian offers in the midst of suffering. Romans 8, 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Let me just conclude by saying that one of the things that this terrible te teaches us is to beware of Satan's counterfeit. He certainly has counterfeit Christians. 2 Corinthians 11:26 calls them false brethren. There is also in this world what the, the Lord has called a counterfeit gospel, another gospel. There is also in that counterfeit gospel a counterfeit righteousness. That is, when we try to please God on the basis of our own righteousness, and at the end of the age, he will even offer a counterfeit Christ. But in our life, it is our job to make sure that we're among the real believers. God may have spoken to some of your hearts this morning, and some of you may be tempted to say, Well, preacher, I think Satan's trying to get me to doubt my salvation. And my response would be, I doubt that. I doubt it very much. There are times when Satan may indeed do that. In times when you are genuinely trying to serve the Lord, then Satan may come along and tell you that you're not really saved and you have no business trying to serve the Lord. He does that to try to defeat you and keep you from serving the Lord. But in a service like this, it really wouldn't be in his own best interest to convince you that you're not really saved. Some base their experience on sometime in the past when they prayed a prayer or they walked an aisle or they had some emotional experience. Some might say, well, my mother says that I, when I was little, I trusted Christ. She can tell you that you, you said a prayer, but only you know if you trusted Christ. If someone asks you, are you married? What kind of a response does it elicit? Do you answer, I hope so? I think so? No. You know, either you are or you're not. The Lord wants you to have that same kind of assurance about your salvation. That's why it says in 1 John 5.13, these things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son 
of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, certainly not my desire this morning to cause anyone who's genuinely saved to doubt their salvation. Well, Lord, it certainly is my desire to cause anyone who is not genuinely saved to rethink that experience and take hold of the opportunity they've been given today to make things right. Maybe you've been dealing with them for some time and they just need to let go and turn their lives over to you. It may be that there are some here that are genuinely saved, but they're been apart from you because things in life have got difficult and things have cropped up in their lives that have caused distance between you and them. I pray this morning that they'd use this opportunity to come back to you, come back into close fellowship with you. Father, whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.